Well, for several weeks now, we've had the joy of studying the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, certainly, of our Savior, and maybe the most famous sermon of all the world. And we've already felt its impact in the few weeks that we've been able to study it, uh, as we've looked intently at the opening section, which is the Beatitudes. If you haven't been here with us, we have repeatedly emphasized the importance of the context of this sermon. It didn't just come out of nowhere. In fact, Matthew tells us in verse 1, it arose out of Jesus' observation of the crowds, these crowds at the end of chapter 4 that have been flocking to him because of his healing ministry and his popularity. This was what prompted Jesus to deliver this message. And it was a message that was targeted not at the crowds, but at his disciples. He actually calls the disciples away from the crowds unto himself up on a hillside to begin delivering this message. And it's all aimed, if you remember, at the definition of a true follower and true believer in Christ. This was Jesus' attempt to help his disciples understand the crowds, to understand all these people who are flocking uh, to him and all of their interest, to help him understand that not everyone who, who comes to Christ follows Christ. Not everyone who listens to Christ obeys Christ. Not everyone who professes Christ is a true believer in Christ. All of this is really helping them to discern the true nature of a disciple. And so he's giving them all of this, and at the core of it are these beatitudes, these pronouncements of blessing, or as we've said in the past, sort of statements and declarations of congratulations, how enviable you are if you're in one of these positions because of what you receive and because of the way the Lord answers you and because of what you inherit. All of these are truly enviable positions. And as we've gotten into this, it's... uh, it becomes obvious as you move your way through the, the Beatitudes that there's a kind of a sequence to them, a progression, if you will, as you move along. They're arra- arranged in such a, a way as to chart a, a pathway towards spiritual renewal or to chart a pathway that someone would typically follow as they embrace the gospel, a pathway to finding Christ. It begins, of course, at the gateway of spiritual poverty, as Jesus says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. They recognize their utter unworthiness before the Lord. They recognize their spiritual impoverishment, their spiritual weakness, their inability uh, to accomplish anything, their lack of, of, of anything to make them commendable before God, complete lack of resources to do anything about their condition or to make themselves commendable to God or really to anyone else. They're utterly helpless. It's at this point, ironically, that Jesus says, when you reach this place of poverty, you're poor in spirit, that you are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. It's actually those who have spiritually nothing, those who have spiritually accomplished nothing, those who have really no spiritual resume whatsoever. It's actually them who enter the kingdom of heaven. It's this recognition of poverty then that leads you to mourn and weep, as he says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn and weep. 
They become aware of their spiritual poverty, and they can by no means take joy in their condition. They're naturally grieved. They lament. They mourn their situation. Anyone would if they recognize the deep state of bankruptcy that they're in. They're mourning and they're weeping. But Jesus says this too is a blessing because when you reach this place of mourning, he says you're blessed for you will be comforted. When you're actually saddened, when you're actually grieved, when you're actually weeping over your spiritual state, it's at this point, Jesus says, that you're comforted. Comforted by the gospel, comforted by forgiveness, comforted by reconciliation to God that that kind of weeping and repentance brings. Well, all that leads us to our focus this morning, which is the third beatitude. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is the natural and the logical outcome for those who are spiritually impoverished, for those who mourn their sinful state, because meekness comes out of a sense of unworthiness and it arises out of a sense of nothingness. It's the natural stance of the person who has reached the end of themselves and the end of their resources and seeing that they have nothing spiritually to offer or nothing spiritually of value, it produces within them a meek attitude. Now this morning, just like we have in the past, we want to we unpack this for ourselves and, and really for our edification and growth. And to do that, we're going to sort of follow the same the same paradigm that we've laid out the last couple of weeks. So take a moment to expound the meaning of what Jesus is saying here and then followed up with some explanation, excuse me, some examples of what he's talking about. So let's start, first of all, just by considering the meaning of meekness, the meaning of meekness expounded. The word itself, praes, is is a word that basically means mild and gentle. It's used to describe the the soft um, touch of a breeze as it passes across your cheek. But when it's applied to a person, it is associated with people who we might say are unassuming. They're gentle and mild in the sense that they're unassuming. Or we could say it in a different way. It's associated with people who are not overly impressed by their own sense of self-importance. They're not overly impressed by their own sense of self-importance. They, uh, they're the kind of people who assume they have nothing to offer. In fact, they know they have nothing to offer because they've come to grips with their spiritual poverty. They've grieved over their lack of resources and their utter nothingness. And now this impacts their attitude as they interact with other people. Whereas the first two Beatitudes reflect uh, what's going on in our hearts, this one now takes us to the interaction and what it produces as we deal with others. And so the meek person is a person who is consumed, or I should say not consumed, with their own self-importance. And because of that, they are what we might say, they are a considerate person. That is to say that they're, they're considerate of the interest of others far more than they are of their own. 
They're inclined to show awareness of the value of others rather than the value of themselves because they've concluded that in themselves they have no value. They're spiritually impoverished. They're spiritually bankrupt. Now, some people have associated this, and appropriately so, they've defined meekness as essentially the opposite of aggression or the opposite, we might even say, of of violence. It basically describes a quality of not being defensive, not being retaliatory. This describes the kind of person, in other words, who isn't easily offended. They're not easily offended when someone points out their spiritual weakness. They're not easily offended when someone points out their deficiencies because they've already taken stock of their deficiencies. They've already recognized their spiritual poverty. And so they're not easily provoked. They're not easily offended. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at James chapter 1 because this sort of contrast between meekness and, and anger or wrath or aggression is exactly the kind of thing that James brings out as he's discussing the Word of God. He says in James 1, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. You see the contrast here that James is making. He's talking to the person who would be confronted with the Word of God, and rather than listen to the Word of God, or rather than letting someone uh, challenge them with the Word of God, they respond defensively. They respond retaliatory, in a retaliatory way. They respond with anger and with, uh, with uh, excuses or whatever it might be. And James is saying, no, 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 no. You need to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. In fact, what you need is meekness. You need to receive the implanted word with meekness. So instead of uh, taking offense, instead of being defensive, you need humility. You need to recognize the fallibility in your own wisdom, the limitations in your own knowledge, the frailty of your own sort of uh, pathway, and the value of hearing God's Word. To receive the Word of God in meekness then is to receive it without defensiveness and without retaliation. This is, in fact, if you're there in James, turn over to chapter 3. You'll see in verse 13, this is the way that James actually goes on to describe uh, sort of this meek wisdom in James 3.13. Who's wise, he says, and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What does that mean, the meekness of wisdom? Well, down in verse 17, he explains it. The wisdom that's from above, it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. So he's telling us what this meek 
wisdom or what this meek attitude looks like, instead of hostility, it's peaceable. Instead of harshness, it's gentle. Instead of being authoritarian, it's open to reason. In other words, it's not going around demanding its own way. It's not demanding its own opinions. And all of this flows out of a view of your own spiritual poverty, a recognition that in and of yourself, your personal opinions, your personal taste, your personal preferences, all of those things, that there is no inherent value in any of that. It is spiritually impoverished. And so you don't always insist on your own way. You're not always offended when people don't share your perspective. When they don't take the time to, to, to listen to your particular viewpoint. This is why James contrasts meekness with anger or defensiveness. The meek person is not easily provoked. They're not easily offended. They're not the kind of person that you're always having to walk around uh, on eggshells, we might say. In fact, it's just the opposite, James says. They're eager to listen. They're eager to learn. They're very humble about their own perspective. They want input. They're not always uh, flying uh, off the handle or fleeing out of the room. They're basically not defensive because they don't believe they have anything worth defending. They've declared themselves spiritually poor. They've mourned over their spiritual state. They've renounced themselves. And, they, and all of this makes them a sort of a yielding person. And we might add to that, that the, the meek person is not offended not only when people reject their ideas, they're not offended when people reject them. When they're treated with contempt, when they're treated with dishonor, it doesn't surprise them. When they're treated with disrespect, it doesn't surprise them because they've already concluded about themselves and about their sinful life, they've already concluded that they don't deserve it. They don't deserve honor, they don't deserve respect because they've seen their spiritual poverty. John Bunyan Of course, we know the 17th century preacher who was a humble tinkerer until the Lord moved on his heart to begin preaching to a few widows in a local nonconformist Baptist church. And he, not content just to preach them on a Sunday, he started to preach out in, in the open air, out in the streets and in his village until he was arrested for doing so and thrown into jail for a dozen years. Someone asking him later, how did you deal with that injustice? How did you deal with being treated like that? Bunyan's response is, he that is already down need fear no fall. A person who's already cast themselves down can't be knocked down by others. A person who's already confessed their spiritual poverty can't have anything taken from them. They don't believe they have anything to take in the first place. They're spiritually poor. And all of that removes from them the attitude of defensiveness. There's nothing to defend. There's no spiritual standing. There's no spiritual pride. 
No one can take their place because they don't have any place. Now, you hear all of this description about the meek person. And you might be thinking, well, that that sounds great. It wouldn't be wonderful if that's just the way things worked. But you have to understand, Shane, you have to understand that, that if you do that, people are going to take advantage of you. I mean, this is just the real world that we live in. And, and, uh, and it may not even bother you that people would take advantage of you, but, but if you let people do that, you have to understand it's just going to empower the brutal. It's just going to encourage others whenever they're taking advantage of you to go and do it to someone else. And, and so you just have to understand that the the answer in the kind of world that we live in, the answer is to uh, sort of uh, battle power with power. You have to be assertive. You have to take a stand. You have to stand up for yourselves. You have to stand up for your rights. Otherwise, wicked men and women would become unbearable in this world. Well, if that's what you're thinking and in hearing, then you're really not hearing what I'm saying about meekness. You're misunderstanding the focus here. Because to speak about this absence of defensiveness is not an absence of conviction. It's not a suggestion of weakness or lack of courage or a compromising spirit. In fact, G.K. Chesterton So many years ago in his book, Orthodoxy, he spoke about this misunderstanding. He says this, quote, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty, he says, has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed, Chesterton says. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, which is divine reason. That is to say the truth of God's Word. Well, what was just arising on the horizon at the first part of the 20th century for Chesterton has absolutely permeated every part of society in the church today. People are meek and yielding on far too many areas of God's truth. But when it comes to themselves, they will fight, they will battle, they will claw, they will retaliate to the point of ruin. Because this is the world we live in. This is the way they've concluded that you have to live. Meekness, however, doesn't call you to compromise. It doesn't call you to an absence of conviction. It doesn't call you to an absence even of anger against unrighteous deeds when you see them. But it is fundamentally an absence of self-interest. Meekness is an absence of self-ambition. It is an absence of self-promotion. By our meekness, then we renounce personal resources, we renounce personal ambitions, we let go of our own opinions, 
And all the while we cling to God and to His truth. So don't hear what we're saying this morning and think that what we're uh, talking about or what we're calling people to is a lack of courage or a lack of backbone or even a lack of leadership. We're not even really talking about someone who is just generally nice or just, we might even say, an easygoing personality. None of that is really what this is about. This is something that's totally different. This is someone who has come to see their spiritual bankruptcy, and so they've renounced themselves as the center of the world. They have renounced themselves as the center of their interest, and they replaced self with an interest in the glory of God. Therefore, they're no longer demanding that other people yield to them, to their own opinions, to their own interests. In fact, they, uh, uh, the meek person recognizes that when you do become a compromiser in terms of the truth, you're often compromising out of self-interest. That people who compromise in the area of truth often cave to unrighteousness in an effort to protect their own esteem before the world. And so part of meekness is getting rid of even that. And it leads to a willingness to stand for the truth in spite of the cost. Actually, many times leads to a deeper conviction of the truth. All of this is so much more than just general niceness. It's so much more than just an easygoing attitude. And all of it is so contrary to the world that beckons you to it, a world that would tell you in order to get anything done, you have to be assertive, you have to be aggressive. You can't always be showing deference to other people. You can't lay aside self-interest. If you do that, you're going to be destined to suffer at the hands of people who are intent on taking things from you. You'll be deprived. You'll be violated. You'll be left at the bottom of the heap. Which makes Jesus' statement all the more striking because back over in Matthew chapter 5, you'll notice what he says. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. What does he mean by earth? Well, he means the same thing he means down in verse 13 when he says, you're the salt of the earth. Or the corollary in verse 14, you're the light of the world. The earth, the world, whatever it is, it's just simply talking about the things that you see, all the stuff that is visible before you, all the things you can touch and feel, the world, the earth. And he's saying that this is going to be yours, that you're going to be master over this, all the material things that all the world is after. Jesus is saying it is your inheritance, if you're meek. It ultimately will pass to you. When will that happen? Well, it'll happen when God wants it to happen. It will most certainly happen at the return of Christ. It'll happen at the judgment seat of Christ when He deals with all who are oppressive and all the unjust, if not sooner. But the spirit of the age tells you that you don't need to wait. That you need to have all all of this right now. Everything taken from you Everything deprived to you, everything that, that uh, your eye desires, even all of it, you need it now. You don't need to wait. 
You need to have it all right now, and if you're going to have it all right now, you have to take it by force, which certainly appeals to our flesh, which on one hand wants to exalt our pride, wants to assert ourselves, and on the other hand doesn't want to wait for anything. But you have to understand, those temptations are not new. They've always run contrary to God's will, and they've always been the temptation that stands in the way of meekness. You see, the meek have always suffered. They've always suffered under the aggressions and the corruptions of the world. They've always had to remind themselves of God's ultimate justice and God's ultimate timing. In fact, uh, over in Math, excuse me, over in Psalm 37, you can turn there because there's a quotation out of that psalm that is in the Greek Old Testament, a word-for-word, uh, almost word-for-word direct quotation of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. In fact, uh, most Bible students have recognized that Jesus is probably quoting from Psalm 37. And you'll notice down in verse 11 where it says, but the meek shall inherit the land. Or you could translate it, Uh, The word Eretz, you could translate it earth as well as land. So the meek will inherit the land or the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. In fact, the psalm makes this promise numerous times. Back in verse 9, you'll notice, those who wait for the Lord shall possess the land. Down in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land. Verse 34, wait for the Lord Keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. So it's obvious that he's, he's giving this assurance to people who are, for whatever reason, uh, suffering or questioning or doubting this reality. And it's obvious from the psalm that one of the qualities that he's exhorting them to is not just meekness, but waiting He gives the promise that they're going to inherit the land, but he acknowledges the difficulty of waiting. You'll notice how he begins in verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they shall soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. So this is meekness. Meekness is recognizing that the answer doesn't lie within you. The answer lies with the Lord and you have to trust Him with it. Down in verse 7, he says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. For him, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. So here you see the the contrast once again. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't be defensive. Don't be retaliatory. Don't be any of those things. Instead, in contrast to all of that, be meek. Be meek. 
and put your hope in the Lord. So the meek person, a core part of their meekness is this deep-seated recognition and trust of the Lord's mercy. Rooted in the deep conviction that God is not against you, but he's for you. And because of that, you can commit your cause to the Lord. You can put it into his hands. You acknowledge your own insufficiency to grapple with all of these issues and you don't even try. You fix your hope on God and because of all this, the psalmist goes on to say, you're quiet before the Lord. There's a a calmness in your life. You're not fretting. Even if the world is melting around you and everything's falling apart, you're not fretting over the, the wicked who seem to be getting their way. You're not fretting over their evil schemes. You're not constantly torn up and churned up. Because even while God's justice isn't visible, it's certain. It is certain. And in the end, everything will be made right. This is what is at at the heart of the meek. This is what I hope you can understand now. This is the way a person maintains meekness while at the same time carrying a deep conviction of God's truth. This is also how you can begin to understand that some of the greatest leaders in all the Bible are described as meek. Which leads us to really our second point this morning, which is not just the expounding of this truth, but the example of this truth that we find in so many who are uh, described to us on the pages of Scripture. It's full of examples, the Bible is, of meek people. It is full of people who are examples of this meekness, and yet we realize that they're not a bunch of weak and cowardly people. In fact, they're the greatest leaders recorded anywhere, whether in Scripture or out of Scripture, recorded not only for their strength, but also for their meekness. A number of commentators, for example, have talked about Abraham, who, if you remember, was given a promise to inherit the land of Palestine. God sent him on his way out of Ur of the Chaldees and he went and he journeyed to the land of Palestine. And yet when he got there, he had a a, a sort of a freeloader along with him, his nephew who was named Lot. And Lot had no promise from God. He had no inheritance. He had no claim, no right, nothing. And yet there came a point where Lot determined that he was due, just like Abraham was due, an equal share of this new land. So what does Abraham do? He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't stand up to defend his rights or his privileges. He takes Lot up on a mountain and he tells him, look over the land and choose whatever you want. Take it. You can have it. I'll I'll, I'll take what's left over. That's a meek person. Of course, we know how the story goes. Lot chooses a territory that includes Sodom and Gomorrah, takes up his residence in one of those cities, not knowing the, the, the fate that's coming until the Lord finally, in Genesis 19, rains down his judgment on those cities, ruining not the, just them, but the entire territory around them, including 
Lot, his home, all of his possessions wiped out by God. This wasn't calculated by Abraham. He, he, didn't, he didn't put Lot in a position so that, that that kind of reversal of fortunes could happen. He just trusted the Lord. He did whatever he could to maintain the peace. And most importantly, his testimony before all of the various pagan tribes that were around him. It's a meek man. Of course, when you get to Numbers chapter 12, we read the story about Moses, who's described in Scripture as the most meek person who lived on the face of the earth. You remember over in Numbers chapter 12, this incident of jealousy between Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Aaron's his brother, Miriam's his sister. They were actually upset because Moses had married an African woman. And we read this in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, basically an Ethiopian woman. So they want to cast him out because they disapprove of his uh, interracial marriage here. And they can begin, begin to complain against him. And, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us also? Obviously implying uh, we could get rid of this guy and be no worse off. We could do just as good a job as he could. Verse 2 says, and the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Why does the Lord put that right there? Why does he choose that to be the place to make this statement about Moses' meekness? Because that is the very place that you would expect Moses to stand up for himself. That's the very place that you would expect Moses to step in and say, wait a second, guys, just remember who the Lord appointed here. Remember your place. Remember the positions here. Remember the titles here. Remember the rights here. That's what you would expect from Moses. But you know what? He never does that. Never anywhere in this chapter does he do that. In fact, I would suppose that Moses is over there hearing this, probably saying to himself, well, actually, yeah, I there would be better people than me. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, a man who stutters. I don't have a gift with words. In fact, the Lord had to appoint Aaron alongside Moses to do most of the speaking because Moses couldn't really speak publicly. He would stumble all over himself. Moses knew his deficiencies. I mean, he understood his spiritual poverty. He was probably over there listening to that and thinking, you know, it's justified. I mean, I... I wouldn't, I'm not very good at this. Of course, we know how this turned out. The Lord called Aaron and Miriam and Moses all out to the tent of meeting. And after rebuking Aaron and Moses, he strikes Miriam with leprosy. And she's saved from her leprosy only by the fact that Moses prayed for her. He prayed for her to be healed. Folks, that's a meek person. That's a person who isn't easily offended. That's a person who isn't always on the defensive. It's an incredible testimony. 
John Piper says, just as we would expect, the text tells us that Moses, instead of justifying himself against the charge of Aaron and Miriam, the text says that he was the meekest man on earth. Moses doesn't say a word. Instead, he waits patiently for the Lord and frets not over the critical words. Piper goes on to say, or define meekness then as, quote, the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back, end quote. This is the meek person. It's like David, you remember, who after he had been on the throne, God had given him the throne of Israel and his third son, Absalom, runs him out, rebels against him, runs him out of Jerusalem. And on his way out of Jerusalem, he encounters one of the descendants of King Saul, the prior king, a man named Shammai, who takes a position on the hilltop opposite David and begins to hurl curses at David, casting stones down on his head. Abishai, one of David's men, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. David responds, If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why do you do this? Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. The Lord has told him to. It may be that God would look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Here's David. He had a soldier, an army. He had all the power. He had all the right to go and deal with this rebellious citizen in his kingdom. He had all of that at his disposal and yet he chose not to use it. Why? Because he put everything in the Lord's hands. You know, of course, the greatest example of this is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who Peter tells us left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps, 1 Peter 2.21. He says in verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, this is Psalm 37. This is exactly what the psalmist talks about. Here is Christ. He sees injustice. He sees wickedness. He sees the, the evil even coming against him. And yet he doesn't mount up a defense of himself. He entrusts himself to God. And so Peter goes on to tell us in the next chapter, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with meekness, he says. Meekness. You know, this is how Paul described his ministry in 2 Corinthians 10.1 as in treating people with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He doesn't compromise the truth. He doesn't dial back on telling people the truth. But he does it without any 
tone of self-ambition or self-interest. This is meekness. Emptying of your own self-importance. No longer making your interest the center of your world. No longer demanding that everyone in your sphere, everyone in your household, everyone in your circle bow to your personal interests. It is an unassuming attitude that waits on the Lord, commits its way to the Lord, doesn't fret over evil, doesn't retaliate because the meek soul has come to rely on the Lord's mercy alone. That's what comes from an impoverished spirit. Some of you listening to this this morning, you think to yourselves, well, I've never really trusted and waited on the Lord for anything. I mean, all I do is feel frustration. All I sense is anger. All I want to do is lash out at those people who are violating my rights and taking away what I want. That's all I feel all the time. And I'm always churned up and fretting. I don't know that I've ever asked the Lord, waited on the Lord, or seen the Lord do anything. Well, listen, that's why the Lord gave this beatitude, so that you could understand that a true disciple of Christ is a meek person. They're a meek person because they have come to see their spiritual poverty. They've come to recognize they're no longer worth defending. They've mourned over their sin. They've emptied themselves of themselves. And now all that's left is to be filled by God. If you're here this morning, there is an answer to your fretting. There's an answer to your frustration and your anger. There's an answer to everything that is churning inside of you, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is confess those things, confess that spiritual poverty, recognize the wrath of God, that comes against your sin, mourn your spiritual condition. And the scripture says God will comfort you. He will comfort you with forgiveness. He'll comfort you with the gospel. And he'll comfort you with salvation. Father, we're grateful for this word this morning, how, how desperately we need it in a world that is beckoning us to its own definitions to its own aggressions, its own assertions, how we need to understand that disciples of our Savior are different. They may be a part of the crowd, but they're not of the crowd. They may be those who stand alongside of other religious people, but they are transformed by the truths of the gospel and it manifests itself in the ways it manifested itself in our Savior. We want to be like Him. 
We want to be like Him, meek and lowly of heart, a place where we find rest for our souls. How thankful we are for this gospel call. It is the answer to all of the animosity and hatred of this world. And you've given it to us and promised us that along with it will come an inheritance of the earth. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.